Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Thank you for joining our third quarter 2020 earnings call. Leading today's call are Stuart Levings, our President and Chief Executive Officer, and Philip Mayers, our Chief Financial Officer. We will start with our prepared remarks, followed by an open question and answer session. Our news release, including our management's discussion and analysis, the financial statements, and financial supplement, were released last night and are posted on our website at www.sagen.ca. A link to our live webcast and the slides for today's discussion are also posted on our website. A replay of this call will be available via the number noted in the press release and will also be available on our website following today's presentation. The call will be available online for approximately 45 days following today. Our presentation and discussion today contain a disclaimer on forward-looking statements and non-IFRS statements. We note that our actual results may differ from statements that we make which are forward-looking. We advise you to read the cautionary note regarding these forward-looking statements. As well, some of the financial metrics presented on this call today are non-IFRS measures and as such do not have a standardized meaning and are unlikely to be comparable to similar measures by other companies. I would now like to turn the call over to Stuart to begin his remarks. Stuart? Thanks, Aaron. Good morning, and thanks for joining our call. We were pleased with our third quarter results, including positive top-line momentum, a 13% loss ratio, and 13% operating return on equity. While the economic environment continues to evolve in line with our expectations, there remains a high degree of uncertainty as the country enters a second wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. That said, the pace of economic recovery, strength of the housing market, and downward trend in mortgage payment deferrals should help us manage through this period, even as the mortgage payment deferral and government wage subsidy programs wind down over the coming months. For the quarter, we delivered net operating income of $119 million, up 4% over the prior year period and 18% over the prior quarter, largely due to a decrease in losses on claims. This resulted in fully diluted operating earnings per share of $1.38, up 3% over the prior year period and 18% over the prior quarter. Net premiums written totaled $291 million, up 37% over the prior year period. This growth was driven by a significant increase in transactional mortgage insurance volumes, largely due to the strength of the housing market and increased market share, offset by a smaller, more traditional level portfolio insurance volume. 
The housing market has continued to benefit from strong demand due to low interest rates and pent-up demand coming out of the much slower spring months. In addition, the mortgage deferral program has helped to bridge borrowers in financial difficulty, thereby avoiding an increase in supply due to forced sales. These factors have resulted in a strong seller's market in most parts of the country. The strength of the housing market is also a function of the disproportionate impact of unemployment amongst the service and entertainment sectors, a cohort typically underrepresented amongst home buyers. In line with seasonal patterns, we expect demand will ease over the winter months, and supply may increase as some borrowers look to sell their home when they reach the end of their mortgage payment deferral. This will make for a softer, more balanced housing market in 2021. Our market share increased during the quarter as lenders allocated more business to the private sector in response to the underwriting changes implemented by CMHC. We were pleased with the quality of mortgage insurance applications we saw during the quarter with a modestly higher average credit score of 752. The proportion of new insurance written with gross debt service ratios above 35% or total debt service ratios above 42% increased from approximately 35% prior to July to approximately 41% in the third quarter and remains within our risk appetite. The higher debt service ratios on these loans are largely due to the prevailing qualifying rate and concentration in economically diverse but more expensive urban areas, including Toronto and Vancouver. We continue to limit our exposure to loans with a high debt service ratio and credit score below 720, and this proportion remained low at just over 3%. As a reminder, both the GDS and TDS ratios are calculated using the Bank of Canada qualifying rate, which was 4.79% as of September 30th, representing a buffer of approximately 200 to 250 basis points above the average contract rate for new insurance written during the quarter. We did not see a material increase in the volume of non-traditional sources of down payment and loans with a credit score below 680, which continued to represent a very small proportion of our enforced portfolio and within our risk appetite limits. As a result of our strong transactional insurance premiums within this quarter, along with the higher than expected portfolio insurance volumes earlier in the year, we have updated our 2020 outlook for total premiums written to be significantly higher than the prior year. On the economic front, we are encouraged by the ongoing recovery, albeit at a slower pace, while recognizing that the risks related to the second wave remain uncertain and the potential for further restrictions on economic activity may put more pressure on employment gains over the coming months. Our loss ratio continues to be influenced by our economic assumptions and reserving approach, which includes an incurred but not reported amount to reflect potential losses embedded in the mortgage deferrals given these loans are not in a delinquent status. The relatively low loss ratio of 13% for the third quarter was largely a function of the very strong housing market, which drove significant favorable development on our existing case reserves, including a higher number of cures as borrowers were able to sell their homes and pay off their mortgage. In the absence of this factor, our loss ratio would have been 23%, more in line with the prior quarter. The level of reported mortgage deferrals continues to decline, ending the quarter at 5.9%, down from 13.7% at the end of June. Consistent with prior quarters, approximately 66% of these loans had an effective loan-to-value less than 80%, representing an equity buffer in the event of ongoing income challenges. We continue to collaborate closely with our customers 
and other industry participants on the post-deferral loss mitigation strategy to implement measures aimed at reducing potential delinquencies from this population. We remain confident that the vast majority will resume mortgage payments at the end of the deferral period. Based on this, along with the current economic trends and assumptions, we are lowering our full-year estimated loss ratio range from 25 to 35 percent to 15 to 25 percent for 2020. As is typically the case during an economic downturn, we do expect to see a lag effect on new delinquencies, potentially exacerbated by the slower economic recovery and softer housing market, with the result that losses and claims will likely be higher next year. We ended the quarter with an estimated MICAT ratio of 179%, well above the upper end of our targeted operating range. As noted during our second quarter call, capital redeployment is on hold for the remainder of this year outside of ordinary dividends. Our book value at $43.39 per share is up 3% over the prior quarter, driven by ongoing profitability. With that, I'll turn it over to Phil for a deeper look at our financial results. Thanks, Stuart, and good morning. Our third quarter results were particularly strong with premiums written of $297 million, net operating income of $119 million, and a loss ratio of 13%. This relatively low loss ratio benefited from $16 million of favorable development from the second quarter loss reserves. The main drivers of this favorability were the strong housing market and rebound in employment levels. Excluding the favorable development, the loss ratio would have been 23% as compared to the prior quarter's loss ratio of 27%. Premiums earned in the quarter were modestly higher at $173 million. The 23% year-over-year growth in year-to-date premiums written should provide a tailwind for premiums earned in the coming quarters. Losses and claims of $23 million were lower sequentially by $23 million primarily due to the favorable development noted earlier. In order to estimate the anticipated losses from defaults that would have otherwise occurred in the quarter had mortgage payment deferrals not have been in place, we're using our internal loss forecasting model and multiple forward-looking economic scenarios to determine or incur the not reported, or IBNR, reserve. Although we remain cautious and the ultimate pace of the recovery remains uncertain, Overall, the current macroeconomic outlook has improved relative to the prior quarter, and this contributed approximately $4 million in favorable development from the second quarter IBNR, and a further $12 million primarily related to a higher level of cures on reported delinquencies. As noted previously, the IBNR reserve is expected to build through the course of 2020, reflecting the typical time lag of one to six months between the end of deferrals and the emergence of delinquencies. As most payment deferrals ended in the fourth quarter, we expect that the vast majority of these mortgages will resume making monthly mortgage payments in the fourth quarter. We're working closely with lenders to screen the population of mortgage deferrals for workout opportunities. That said, we expect an increase in reported delinquencies starting in the fourth quarter and continuing into the first half of 2021, especially in Alberta and the prairies where house prices and employment continue to be pressured. As Jert noted, our current outlook for the full-year loss ratio range has been revised to 15 to 25 percent in comparison to the reported year-to-date loss ratio of 18 percent. As expected, payment deferrals have contributed to a significant decline in new reported delinquencies, which dropped sequentially by 187 to 756. At the same time, the number of cures increased substantially by 312 to 764, 
reflecting the rebound in housing activity and employment. The net result was a negative number of new delinquencies net of cures of negative eight. Correspondingly, the number of outstanding delinquencies decreased by 205 sequentially to 1,769, and the delinquency rate was marginally lower at 20 basis points. Geographically, Ontario, Alberta, and Quebec accounted for most of this decrease. With the model IBNR being responsible for approximately 40% of total lost reserves, we caution against placing too much significance on the 19% increase in the average reported reserve per delinquency to $101,000. Expenses in the quarter totaled $33 million, and the resulting expense ratio of 19% was consistent with our targeted range of 18 to 20%. We expect to be around the high end of this range for the full year, including one-time transition costs related to our IT infrastructure and financial systems. We earned $48 million of operating investment income, which was flat sequentially as growth in invested assets generally offset the impact of the lower interest rate environment. In total, we generated a fully diluted operating EPS of $1.38, and our diluted book value per share, including AOCI, now stands at $43.39. Current investments. The market value of our investment portfolio is $6.7 billion, an increase of over $200 million sequentially, reflecting the strong cash flows in the quarter and an improvement in the overall market value of our fixed income securities and preferred shares. Portfolio quality remains strong with approximately 92% in cash and investment grade fixed income securities and 8% in highly rated preferred shares. We see no defaults in the portfolio and our below investment grade holdings are only $9 million. While we continue to emphasize portfolio quality, we're also focused on optimizing the portfolio yield within our risk appetite. That being the case, the low rate environment will continue to pressure the current pre-tax equivalent book yield of 3%. Accordingly, we continue to expect operating investment income to be moderately lower for the full year as compared to 2019. Overall, the company's capital position is very strong with a MICAT ratio of 179%, holding the company cash and investments of $123 million and a modest debt-to-total capital ratio of 14%. The 10-point quarter-over-quarter improvement in the MICAT ratio reflects continued growth in capital available and lower required capital as the runoff from the aging of the 2018 and prior books, especially the larger 2015 and 2016 books, more than offset the capital required for this quarter's new business. Over the medium term, we expect to operate at or above the high end of our targeted MICAT operating range of 160 to 165% in light of regulatory considerations, the positive top line momentum, and ongoing economic uncertainty. In closing, the company is well positioned going forward. I'll now turn the call back to Stuart to wrap up. Thanks, Phil. We continue to make good progress on our strategic initiatives, including the transition of our IT infrastructure and financial reporting systems from the U.S. to Canada, which we completed during the month of October. On October 26, we announced that the company has entered into a definitive arrangement agreement swaying to which Brookfield business partners, together with its affiliates and institutional partners, will purchase all the outstanding common shares not already owned by them. In our view, this transaction, together with our company's recent rebranding as Sage and MI Canada, represents an exciting new chapter for the company. We look forward, under Brookfield's ownership, to continuing to work with lenders, regulators, and mortgage professionals to help people responsibly achieve and maintain the dream of home ownership. Thanks for listening. That concludes our prepared remarks. 
I will now turn the call back to the operator to commence with Q&A. Thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, we will now conduct the question and answer session. As a reminder, the conference is being recorded for replay purposes. We ask that you refrain from using cell phones, speaker phones, or headsets during the Q&A portion of today's call. If you have a question, please press star 1 on your touchtone telephone. You will hear a tone acknowledging your request, and your questions will be pulled in the order they are received. And one moment for the first question. And the first question comes from Jeff Kwan with RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, I was just looking from the quarter. I mean, there was a higher than normal number of cures, which um, maybe isn't all that surprising, um, given everything that's been going on uh, and how the banks and insurers have been responding. But um, do you have a ballpark, even like what percentage of those would have been cured by either the homeowner selling um, or would have been a power of sale? And, and how would that percentage compare to call it a more normal quarter? Yeah, good morning. It's Stuart here. We don't get that level of detail at this point. I mean, obviously, if we do the cure ourselves, we know about it. But if these are self-cures, which a large proportion of them were, then it is not known whether or not it was through you know, either of those two methods. I would imagine that just given the market that we've all seen, a lot of those people were just able to sell their homes um, you know, by themselves without much trouble. So I guess it didn't, would, it, would it be fair to say that there was probably a higher than normal number of self-cures than, than what you might have in a, in a typical quarter? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, and then how, how do you go about in terms of making the determination of if and how much uh, would be required to book an, an IBM bar reserve for a borrower that's, uh, that's on deferral currently? Jeff. Good morning, Jeff. It's Phil. The way we approach it is we look at the prevailing economic assumptions and we estimate what would losses be given the fundamental economics as related to unemployment and home prices by region. And then what we do is, you know, that would tell us here's what the expected losses should be. And then what we would do is that would establish what our losses incurred would be. And then to the extent we get reported delinquencies, we would offset that and the residual would be our incurred but not reported. We obviously forecast economics forward as we disclose in the MDNA. And the, the, the reason to do that is we know that there's a lag between the event and necessarily delinquencies. So by forecasting forward, we're essentially looking at um, what losses would occur and what would have occurred, occurred within a specific period. Got it. Okay. And just my last question is, uh, is there any color or clarity that you've gotten from lenders on, on what you picked up in market share uh, from Q3? Obviously, the CMHC decision uh, would have been a tailwind, but just wondering if there's any color you can provide. Yeah, Jeff, I mean, we've had, um, obviously, a number of conversations with lenders. It's hard to put the absolute totals together until we see the results from the other two mortgage insurers. But I would estimate we're probably in the high 30s percent uh, market share at this point. Okay. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Our next question will come from Tom McKinnon with BMO Capital. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks very much. Good morning. Um, just looking at the MyCat ratio, we had, uh, um, you know, a 10-point quarter-over-quarter jump in the number or in that ratio. 
And it looks like even the required capital kind of went down 3% quarter over quarter, you know, despite the really strong transactional volume. Uh, is that, uh, um, would we expect that uh, trend to continue? As long as you have that kind of top line growth, I would have expected it would have been some constraint on your required capital. But it seems like the, the impact of the uh, runoff of the aging books is more than offsetting even this, the uh, increase in required capital as a result of this strong uh, top line growth. Um, uh, maybe you can give us some of the comments as to what, does, how, do you think this will continue? Do you think we should probably be looking at that MICAT ratio going up like another five or six or seven points each quarter? How should we be thinking about that? Um, I think there are some one-time factors that played in our favor, and that was largely related to the 2015 and 2016 books. As you can imagine, they're coming up in their five-year anniversary. Those borrowers are seeing significant interest savings, and as a result of them, it would appear that a number of them may have refinanced and we came off risk. So I think there were some temporary phenomena related to the prevailing low mortgage rates, and as it impacted the large books that we wrote in 2015, 2016, if you remember back in 2015, 2016, portfolio insurance, we did large amounts of portfolio insurance. And if you look at our quarter-over-quarter quarter runoff in the outstanding balances, in those two book years, we saw about $6 billion come off. So I would say that you know, what we saw this quarter isn't necessarily trendable, and we would expect that we'll return to a more normal um, cadence where you know, the, um, new, the top line will generally be funded by the runoff but not necessarily have a significant excess like we saw this quarter. Okay, and that's great. And uh, is there any kind of update you're hearing about uh, Aussie's timing with respect to its restriction on dividend increases and specials and share buybacks? No, Tom, unfortunately not. Uh, no, no further information on that area. Okay, thanks. And ladies and gentlemen, if there are any additional questions at this time, please press star followed by one. As a reminder, if you are using a speakerphone, please lift the handset before pressing the keys. Our next question will come from Graham Riding with TD Securities. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, Stuart, maybe I'll start with you. Just, you know, as CEO, you're also on the board. Can you talk about the um, author price, 4350 from, uh, from Brookfield, and, and why the special committee was comfortable that it's, that it's viewed as a fair price? Yeah, I would say um, on that, the real answer that you're looking for will be evident in the circular that will be disclosed later on in this month. Um, that'll be, of course, as you know, a very, very comprehensive report with the special committee's report, the valuation that Scotiabank did. Um, so I think that's really the, uh, the document that we should wait for before uh, discussing whether or not uh, and how the price was agreed to. Okay. Um... Fair enough. And then, uh, Phil, I'll jump to you. Just within your um, IBNR reserving, you know, I guess what percentage of the deferrals I, do you assume could move into delinquency, you know, once uh, these uh, all fully expire? And then what does that imply for a potential range for your delinquency rate looking into 2021? Um, I would say, Graeme, that, you know, we continue to test the IBNR reserve for reasonability, looking at, you know, anything from, you know, a 5 to 10% um, delta claim roll rate related to deferrals. 
Um, the one thing of note is, you know, we saw the deferral population come down substantially over the third quarter, and clearly, you know, a lot of deferrals ended uh, September 30th. So I think we'll begin to see report delinquencies as we go through the fourth quarter into the first quarter of 2021. Um, but all the reasonability tests we have done have indicated that, or, you know, or reserve, which is about $70 million um, out of the $179 million of overall loss reserves, is adequate. Um, when it comes to the delinquency rate, the delinquency rate is a point in time rate, so we could see the delinquency rate sort of edge up towards 25 to 30 basis points, but that's because all the deferrals are ending in a similar time frame, and then you'll see that unwind over the course of 2021. So we would expect the delinquency rate to build, um, but having said that, you know, we think that um, the provision that we provided is more than adequate to cover those delinquencies when they do occur. Understood. And that IBNR reserving, are you looking forward to sort of like a one to six month lag? Is that how you're trying to, um, you know, forecast how much you should be reserving? Or are you looking beyond that? Well, as we noted previously, we expect the IBNR reserves to build. So it's built from the second quarter to the third quarter, and we would still expect it to build through the fourth quarter. The expectation is most of the reported delinquencies should be um, received as we go through the first quarter of the second quarter of next year. So we'll continue to build through, you know, the end of this year and likely into the first quarter of next year and then begin to d diminish thereafter as the delinquency population is realized and we um, resolve those delinquencies. Okay, understood. And my last question, if I could, is just, um, you know, it looks like Alberta is the, the core of where these deferrals and delinquencies are showing up. but. What is your view on the, on the Toronto condo market in terms of portfolio risk, given we've seen some increased listings in that area and rents are seeing some downward pressure? Yeah, Graham, absolutely. That's an area that we are watching closely. It's always been uh, a special product type we've underwritten in condos, um, and this is the exact scenario where you worry about where you might have more uh, investors looking to sell or exit their investment. Um, rents are under pressure, as you noted. So I, I would say, luckily, we've always taken a careful stance to this, and uh, our exposure to condominiums is measured. But that said, it's an area that we'll continue to watch closely because in any pockets of the housing market today, that's one area that we'll see some pressure. Great. That's it for me. Thank you. And our final question will come from Jamie Goyne with National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I just want to dig in on the uh, 6% of uh, deferrals remaining. Are you able to give us a little bit more color as to perhaps when those deferrals came in, uh, how much time is left on uh, on their deferral program, and, uh, and are there any second deferrals or deferral extensions included in that number? James Stewart here, I would say that, you know, those still represent most of the initial deferrals that took place. Obviously, um, a lot of the big banks did six months out the gate, and as you know, people started to really take up the deferral program over the months of April, May. Um, so those those are likely still um, got a month or so to go, and we should see them uh, come to the end of their deferral within this next quarter. Um, at this point, there would be none of those that would have had a second deferral already, as they're no longer allowed to extend that. So um, these would just be the remaining cohort, if you will, from uh, predominantly those that got six months initially. Okay, and, and uh, the, the ones that have come off, have they come off and, uh, and have returned to normally, uh, normal
normal regular regular scheduled payments, or has there been other uh, forms of workout related to the deferrals that have come off? Well, that remains to be seen. So the one, you know, the, the drop represents those who have come to the end of their payment deferral uh, arrangement. Uh, as to whether they're now paying that mortgage or in the process of being uh, worked out with a lender through one of the strategies in our playbook remains to be seen. We will get uh, reporting on delinquencies, obviously, as we go forward here, and we'll get a better picture on that. But there is certainly um, some risk that those who have come to the end may not, in fact, be able to make their mortgage payments. These are not, you know, we're absolutely not saying that every one of those has come off is now making their payments because we don't have that information yet. So that will be something that becomes clearer to us over the next couple of months. I see. Thank you. And with no further questions, I would like to turn the call back to Mr. Leving. Thank you again uh, for joining us today. We do appreciate your time, and this concludes our third quarter 2020 earnings call. And this concludes today's conference. Thank you for your participation, and you may now just... Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.